Anyone following the war of Russia's invasion of Ukraine might have noticed that there are not just Russian troops involved. Of course, there's Belarusian as well, but also a private military outfit called the Wagner Group or the Wagner Group, if you wish. It's a private military run by a friend of Vladimir Putin, and it's caught the eye of an awful lot of people, including our next guest, Miles Johnson, who is a writer with the Financial Times. But before we get to Miles, uh, first off, welcome to Full Comment. My name's Brian Lilly, your host. But also, I want to remind you that you can subscribe to Full Comment, to any platform that you're listening to it on. Make sure you hit the subscribe button and don't miss an episode, whether it's on uh, Amazon uh, Music or Apple, Spotify, what have you. Just make sure you hit the subscribe button and, of course, leave us a comment because we hope you find these topics interesting. The Wagner Group, though, is immensely interesting because it's a private military that is operating in many countries in the world now, not just Ukraine, that does the bidding of Vladimir Putin and that is run by a guy who started his business career selling hot dogs off a cart in St. Petersburg. If that doesn't sound fascinating to you, then I don't know what does. Miles Johnson has not only written about Yevgeny Prigozhin, I think I'm saying the name right, he's also heard from him because Prigozhin was not happy with the fact he was being investigated by the Financial Times. Miles, thanks for the time today. Uh, thank you for having me on. What was it like? Take me to that moment when you're, you're writing about Prigozhin and his private military outfit and what it's doing around the world, and you realize that you've got a message from him. Um, I think it was, was it Telegram you got the message on? What, what was it like looking and saying, oh, the, the, the thug has reached out to me? I mean, he's he's an interesting, uh, as you say, he's got a very interesting background, um, interesting story, and this is a man who um, he has a sort of a sort of theatrical flourish, I guess, in his engagement with the media, where um, journalists um, from around the world um, can send him questions to his press service, and um, his press service sometimes uh, answers those, and frequently uh, he uses this, yeah, let's say colorful language uh when he responds to these inquiries and um this one we weren't really expecting but he um yeah it's uh it's far less than uh he's done to other journalists i mean you know it has to be stressed that um you know there's been people who have been um investigating this man for years uh where you know their lives have been put in danger you know um the his organization has been connected with the murder of three russian journalists um in central african republic so uh the words are not so bad compared to some of the other things that um he's been connected to well before we get in, in into the story about the wagner group then were there any times when you were investigating him that you felt that your life was in danger or that you were being threatened other than with scatological references in a telegram message? I think uh, he's um, someone who has a lot of uh, plates he needs to be spinning right now um, in terms of, uh, uh, you know, his involvement in the war in Ukraine. But um, he's, he's obviously, you know, his organization is dangerous. And um, as I said, you know, they've um, threatened and, um, you know, actually uh, killed journalists before. So, so it's something that you have to consider. Um, but I mean, I mean, we'll get into some of the other tactics that he's used to intimidate um, journalists, uh, both in Russia and um, the West. Well, let's start a little bit at the beginning and, and try and explain who uh, Prigozhin is. He, he was uh, a convict who gets out of jail and starts running a hot dog 
cart on the streets of St. Petersburg. How do you go from that to running what's effectively a global cartel? He's got oil and gas interest, lumber interest, gold interest, and this private military group. Uh, How did he become so big, so powerful? Yeah, I mean, it's a really interesting uh, biography, and it's sort of how um, we were approaching the story, because people have been writing about this man for a while, but, you know, the the key um, sort of point which the key change which occurred was last year where up until last year he had ferociously denied having anything to do with you know mercenary activity and then he sort of uh you know he effectively in a sort of scooby-doo moment pulled off the mask and said oh actually i have been running the Wagner group for you know all of these years so um we approached it from looking at it a bit like a business story you know this is a man who's a criminal entrepreneur and um you know, he began life, as you said, you know, um, he was born in Leningrad in the early 1960s, you know, obviously now St. Petersburg. And, um, you know, the sort of semi-official rendition of his biography is that um, his father died when he was young, and then he was sent off to a prestigious um, kind of boarding school for sports and athletics. But then he sort of had this misspent youth whereby the... um, the early 80s he was actually thrown into a soviet prison for being involved in the robbery of a woman and so um he spent around a decade in prison and then as you said um you know you know the soviet union then collapses and this man um you know the story goes uh set up a hot dog stand and sort of managed somehow to um parlay this uh you know fairly uh, modest uh, business venture into um, uh, restaurant business, you know, where he started setting up um, fashionable uh, St. Petersburg restaurants. Um, and that was how uh, he caught the eye of Vladimir Putin. So Putin sees him, likes his restaurants, and effectively just makes him part of his entourage and, and and he gets contracts in that very oligarchy kind of way. The the friends of the leaders get powerful. Is that it? Well, I mean, it's sort of uh, a lot of, you know, the details about exactly how these things happen are still unclear. But, you know, we know that he um, set up a restaurant in St. Petersburg called New Island, which was on a boat. And um, it was a sort of hit. It was a fashionable spot. And, um, you know, Putin, you know, around the turn of millennia, the millennium when Putin had, you know, recently become um, president of Russia, he took sort of taking visiting foreign dignitaries there and leaders. So Jacques Chirac, then the president of France, you know, went there in 2001 with Putin. George W. Bush was a diner there, you know, the year later. And Putin was said himself to have celebrated his birthday at this restaurant. So clearly, Prigozhin was getting a lot of FaceTime with Putin. Um, but then, um, you know, it's then said that um, through that relationship, he began to um, win state catering contracts. And that's really when the sort of uh, money started to roll in. But um, the exactly how you go from sort of running um, restaurants in, uh, let's say, you know, the 1990s, obviously, in Russia was a very tumultuous time. There was a huge amount of, um, uh, you know, organized criminal activity and stuff like that. And how you go from those wild West days, of the 1990s running restaurants to, you know, at this point, uh, going into the private mercenary business is, um, is quite a jump. The, in addition to mercenary, um, he's known for running uh, troll farms, 
uh, online troll farms. Was he actually involved in in some of the campaigns aimed at influencing the the 2016 U.S. election? Yes. So, you know, that's another um, interesting pivot that's occurred recently. So he was actually indicted by the Department of Justice, the U.S. Department of Justice, for um, his Concord um, group. You know, his catering company is called Concord, and it has it's quite a sprawling organization that has all of these different parts. But he was indicted for, um, yeah, running troll farms to interfere in the 2016 elections. And it was something that he vehemently denied. You know, he basically said, had nothing to do with it. He hired, you know, very expensive top, you know, top tier U.S. law firms to defend him. And um, it was only recently after um, the invasion of Ukraine that he came out and said, oh, yeah, actually, it's true. I did interfere at <laughs> in the U.S. election. Uh, much like uh, the, the whole issue with Wagner Group, deny, 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 hire high price lawyers. And I, I want to speak to you about that part of your fascinating story in the Financial Times in a bit. But let, let's stick on with him running all these different operations. And now he's running the Wagner Group. They have become central to the Russian invasion of Ukraine. I, I, I know you've primarily focused on uh, Brigozhin and, and, and his criminal business element. But do you have any sense of why Putin and the Kremlin in general are, are using a private military instead of the Red Army? I mean, we, I grew up hearing stories about the Red Army. We were all worried about the Red Army in the Cold War. Uh, you, Russia's had a long, proud military history and tradition. And now he's using a private army made up of people he, until recently, he's just announced he's going to stop it, but he was recruiting people out of jail. Why yes. are they doing that? Well, I think we have to go back to the sort of um, the beginnings of um, the, the Wagner group and sort of when it started, first started to appear, which is around um, you know, the 2014 Russian invasion of Crimea. But what, um, what you have... So if you have, um, you know, uh, an organization like that, it gives the Kremlin a lot of maneuverability that it wouldn't have if they were using, you know, Russian Ministry of Defense um, operatives, you know, Russian, um, Russian military, because this is effectively an off balance sheet private army. This is something where you can fulfill your your strategic um, you know, geopolitical goals in places like uh, sub-Saharan Africa but you also have deniability. So for years and years, you know, the Kremlin officially denied any connection to Wagner and obviously Prigozhin denied having anything to do with it. And so there were these things happening where everyone knew that these were, you know, Russian speaking, you know, clearly, you know, well-trained, um, you know, sort of uh, fighters, you know, mercenary operatives, but they were not officially to do with Russia. And, you know, you had a famous incident now where, in Syria, you know, which was one of the main centers of operations for, um, you know, uh, Wagner, uh, where they were drafted into uh, back um, Bashar al-Assad, you know, in um, the civil war there, there was a sort of military engagement between the US military and Wagner fighters. And, and normally, if they were Russian, you know, actual Russian official um, soldiers, that would be a huge uh, diplomatic incident, you know, that would effectively be, um, you know, potentially, um, you know, triggering a war between um, uh, Russia and the United States if there were um, US and Russian uh, armies, you know, fight, you know, firing against each other, killing each other in, in, in Syria. But actually, what happened was 
you know, the Russian, the Russian Ministry of Defense basically just said, nope, we don't have anything to do with these guys. And, you know, the, so the story goes, you know, there's various conflicting accounts. There was recently a, a um, Wagner sort of telegram, affiliated telegram channel talking about this incident from the past. But the Wagner troops basically got blown to pieces by um, US, um, US fighter jets. But that was a point where you can deploy these people to parts of the world and they can get into all sorts of trouble or do quite terrible things. And then when that happens, the Kremlin can say, oh, they're not ours. We don't even know who they are. They might not so, exist. So they've used them um, in Ukraine when they invaded into Crimea. They've used them in Syria. And, and I understand that they're very big in the Central African Republic, which uh, you know some have described as simply a vassal state for Putin's Kremlin. Yeah, so that's, um, you know, in terms of the places like uh, Sudan, the Central African Republic, this is also an element where the, um, the Kremlin can kind of project power um, especially post-2014, when it became increasingly internationally isolated and was sort of looking for new friends, um, so to speak, and sort of trying to find different ways of um, projecting power around the world. You know, th- by deploying um, these sort of, uh, you know, mercenary groups to to places like that, they can achieve a number of things all at the same time. Um, you know, they can uh, basically strengthen uh, their relationships with, you know, often pretty awful regimes and um, also set up commercial ventures. You know, so the way we were sort of looking at this story was, um, you know, looking at this as a business operation because in exchange for mercenary assistance in those countries, you know, Prigozhin has been awarded natural resources concessions. So a big, you know, a big part of that was in Syria, you know, where, um, you know, Prigozhin connected companies were being given, you know, really quite significant um, uh, oil concessions um you know they would uh, sort of fight against isis you know and retake large oil fields and then they would sort of get the running of that field um so there was a profit element where um they were being paid in kind and, and to some extent in things like you know there's a gold um a gold mine in sudan you know there's all sorts of natural resources which um sort of add to this international logistical complexity where you're sort of running an operation which involves a military side but you also have a business side so he's literally going in conquering. It's like a, a mini empire within an empire. Conquers a piece of land, and his reward is the natural resources that he are, are on the land. His mercenary group have just taken. Yes, I mean it's sort of in a way his edge because if you can go into um, places where lots of other you know, companies and people just wouldn't want to go, as in they wouldn't want to necessarily deal with the regimes there. The security situation would be probably make it impossible to do that. And they would be able to engage in business practices, which basically no one else would really want to do or be able to do because they would be prosecuted. So it gives you a sort of um, a leg up against a competition, uh, in so to speak, if you're um, going into uh, these locations. And I think it's very much a key part of the business model. Um, but at the same time, there are these other more intangible benefits um, for the Kremlin um, in having these people doing these things. The uh, attempt to investigate him, uh, he denied doing certain things. Others have written about him. He's denied. In fact, he's, he's sued people in British courts. And I want to ask you about that, the fact that both in Washington and in London, this man who is 
quite the thug. I mean, the, the Wagner group, I hesitate to call them soldiers, troops, have been accused of all kinds of atrocities, human rights abuses, um, you know, dismembering bodies, uh, horrific things that I've just thought about and realized I don't want to say out loud. Um, and yet, for people talking about that, they face lawsuits. And British and American lawyers at high-priced, top-flight firms defended this man. Is there any blowback on these firms for defending uh, the, the rights of a, a, a thug like Prigozhin? I mean, this is a sort of fascinating part of the story where if we flash back to just a year ago, he was still engaged. So basically what happened, the background to this story, as you mentioned, is that um, you know there were these um, very um, intricate and amazing investigations into the Wagner group over the years where he still maintained they were all lies and it had nothing to do with him. But, but, you know, there were outlets, which I'm, I'm sure, you know, some of your listeners would have heard of like Bellingcat, you know, who were doing, um, you know, really amazing work into them and lots of Russian um, independent media too. And um, what happened is that um, around in 2021, so, you know, before the invasion of Ukraine was, you know, a reality, and, you know, something which no one was expecting. He um, hired very expensive lawyers in London to sue Elliot Higgins, who is the founder of Bellingcat, um, for defaming him. And basically, in, in the court claim, he said he'd suffered severe emotional damage for these horrible things that Elliot Higgins was meant to have accused him of. Um, and it was completely ridiculous, the idea that he had anything to do with any Russian mercenary activity. And this was a kind of fascinating case because, you know, British libel law is known around the world to be very stringent and it's um, at times quite controversial and it um, puts a huge um, burden on reporters who are looking at things like this. But um, there was never really a case as egregious as this because obviously it transpired you know so flash you know forward from that case being filed against elliot higgins in london if you sort of you know whenever it was i think it was around october last year um in 2022 that was the moment when progozin finally said ha 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 actually i really did found the wagner group so he was basically saying that all of the things he'd said in this court you know submission to um the english court were complete and outright lies and it raised this problem that if you are dealing with people like Prigozhin, they are, you know, a threat. And they raise lots of questions about the rule of law because lawyers will say everyone deserves representation. You know, the worst people in the world, no matter who are, whoever they are, you know, war criminals, mass murderers, they have the right to have a lawyer. And that is the foundation of the rule of law in civilized countries. But then if you have a man like that, who is someone who not on the one hand, he murders journalists, you know, his people have murdered journalists in, um, in, in Central African Republic. And on the other hand, he's hiring the most expensive uh, lawyers, you know, to sort of go after journalists. Um, he is using, or there's a very large risk that he is using um, courts as a tool of asymmetric warfare. And that is not necessarily necessarily something that um, you know Western courts are equipped to deal with. They're not equipped to deal with people who act in the way that this man acts and think how he thinks. I completely agree, Miles, that everyone is entitled to a, a lawyer. 
for their defense, but this is essentially using courts as an offensive weapon, uh, isn't it? Exactly. Uh, it is. And that's the sort of real problem here and something which there is still a very lively debate in happening in, um, in the UK about how to solve this problem. Uh, it's just that in previous instances, you know, we've had, you know, for a very long time, English courts have been used, um, you know, by wealthy, um, you know, powerful people to sort of, um, you know, uh, go after journalists who've written things that they don't like. But this is a particularly egregious, almost unique um, uh, case in terms of how brazen and barefaced it was. And so it, it sort of, um, it was a sort of fascinating um, juxtaposition between a man who was releasing social media posts, laughing about, you know, uh, videos which appeared to show his fighters, you know, murdering someone, bludgeoning them to death with a sledgehammer. And at the other end of the spectrum, he was hiring very fancy, very expensive lawyers who, you know, sort of white shoe law firms who would not in the morning when they wake up and eat their breakfast cereal would like to think, oh, you know what I'm doing today? I'm representing a man who's accused of, you know, war, war crimes around the world. Right. We'll get into more about uh, what's happening with those law firms. Are those lawyers having second thoughts? Uh, when we return. My name's Brian Lilly. This is Full Comment Podcast. Back in moments. The story, if you haven't read it yet, is titled Wagner Inc., A Russian Warlord and His Lawyers in the Financial Times by Miles Johnson. And Miles, uh, you write in the piece about how there's some in the British legal system, some in British society, who uh, take issue with the way that uh, Prigozhin, um, the head of the Wagner Group, used the British court system to protect himself from criticism. Um, but there was a government panel that looked into this, and, and some of the lawyers that defended him said, oh, no, everything's just fine here. This is all hunky-dory, nothing to change. Tell me a bit about that. Yeah, I was quite struck by that when I was researching the story, because basically there have been a number of high-profile cases in um, in England, um, obviously, you know, through the English legal system is is separate within um the uk um but basically there have been a number of these cases where russian oligarchs have sued british journalists um and they have you know started a big debate about whether if you are if you have a system which allows people who are very very wealthy to um impose massive costs on journalists who write about them are you effectively you know severely um diminishing free speech and um you know without wanting to go into a massive amount of detail about the uk libel system um it's a big big sort of uh threat because the costs of these cases can potentially run into vast sums you know hundreds of thousands even millions sometimes of pounds and so for an oligarch that's pocket change that's sort of you know what they'd spend for breakfast but for a media organization, it can be hugely uh, damaging. And so um, that started a big debate after the invasion of our, our courts, you know, our, our, our media law is basically just not equipped to deal with this. But then the Progozin case is really unique because in most of these other cases, there's some element of ambiguity or there's some element of, um, you know, both sides can sort of, you know, if someone wanted to try and back, you know, some of the oligarchs, they say, oh, but, you know, 
this part was a little bit unclear or, or whatever. In this, there was no ambiguity at all. This was a man who was suing a journalist for saying that he ran a mercenary organization. And then eventually, after years of lying about it, he admitted he did run the mercenary organization. So it was an outright lie. And um, the debate hasn't really sort of factored in that possibility that people do that sort of thing. And, and the, the man behind it, uh, Elliot Higgins, uh, used out some £70,000 um, for defending himself for saying the truth. Yeah, and I mean, it, Elliot probably is relatively lucky in the sense of uh, it could have cost him a lot more, you know, in an alternate reality where, um, you know, uh, Putin hadn't invaded Ukraine and maybe the sort of revulsion at what was happening wasn't so high. Um, because, sorry, in that case, his lawyers, Pugosin's lawyers, applied to actually drop, like, leave the case. So around in March, you know, just, you know, a month or so after the invasion, the lawyers sort of dropped out of the case and that meant the case fell apart. But that may not have happened in an alternate reality where um, the invasion hadn't taken place. So it's sort of um, what this really shows is also it's, it's, it is a story which is trying to also examine the sort of moral limits of law and corporate law and sort of really the point when a lawyer would say, I don't want to represent this person. And as you know, you know, there is this debate, you know, about when someone should have legal representation and, you know, surely everyone should have the right to a lawyer, but should they always have a right to a lawyer in this instance when they are bringing cases against journalists? And that's something which I think um, is highly debatable. Well, I, I think it's definitely an ethical question for the law firms, wouldn't it be? I mean, I, I would think some of the firms at a certain point would just say, all right, well, we defend all kinds of people, but warlords accused of war crimes that's a bridge too far. Absolutely. And there's also the the question of when do you cross the line from defending someone in a legitimate case to actually enabling their crimes? You know, in the case of someone who in this instance was running an international criminal organization, you know, the Wagner Group has been labeled by the US government now as a transnational criminal organization. As you know, you said, it's been accused of the most horrific war crimes, you know, murder, rape, you know, sort of torture, the worst crimes imaginable. And these lawyers were serving this man at a time when those activities were occurring. And so if they had been successful, is that something where they are facilitating those crimes themselves? And that's something which is a really, really important ethical question for lawyers in the West to grapple with, especially in the sort of increasingly chaotic and sort of multipolar world that we're operating in. I, I get a sense that British libel law, which I admittedly have not studied in journalism school, I had to study Canadian libel law, but it sounds like yours is not as friendly to journalists. I mean, I, my sense would be that um, we are perhaps um, between where English law is and where American law is, closer to American, where there is much uh, more of a free-for-all. But is it particularly easy to get sued in the UK? Well, I think in, obviously, well, in the UK, one of the first things is, you know, we don't have a constitutional um, protection of freedom of speech. And, uh, but in terms of our libel law, the burden of proof is on the defendant, so to speak. So if I bring a libel claim against you and say, you have defamed me because in an article you said, 
I was running an international criminal organization, you would have to prove, depending on the defense you picked, there are other defenses, but you know, in, in, you would have to kind of prove that that was true. And in these very, very complicated international sort of corruption and criminal sort of stories, it's quite hard to definitively prove things. When you have someone like Prigozhin who's just saying, nope, it's not true. Nope, I have nothing to do with the Wagner group. It's not true. It's not true. And just saying that over and over again, um, you know, you the burden of proof to prove that actually he's lying and he really is running, um, you know, a, a illegal mercenary operation around the world is very, very high. And there was a huge amount of evidence out there to show that he was. You have to think that at the time this man launched this case, he was... Um, I think he was at that time on the FBI's most wanted list. You know, so this is a sort of international fugitive. He had been sanctioned by the US. He'd been sanctioned by the European Union. So, you know, it's it's not like this was a guy who no one had heard of. And, you know, he was just sort of being accused by a lone media outlet of a crime. This is someone who was sort of increasingly becoming a notorious sort of international criminal. Yet that wasn't enough to deter him from launching this case. So it shows you how high the bar has to be and how it's extremely difficult to report on this stuff. So he's gone from suing people for saying he runs the the Wagner Group to reveling in it. They've even opened a, a new headquarters in St. Petersburg with you know, big glass windows. He's, he's, he's openly boasting about it. Uh, yesterday, uh, an announcement that... Um, is no longer recruiting in Russian prisons. Uh, that he, I, I guess, part of the deal was if you um, if you agreed to go fight for them, uh, you you know you wouldn't serve the rest of your sentence. I can't imagine that people were signing up, a, you know, based uh, to go on a battlefield based on a, a four month sentence for shoplifting. So these were some pretty hard men that were were signed up for it. He's also uh, now. Arguing with journalists, as I mentioned earlier, arguing with uh, CNN's Anderson Cooper uh, publicly about the activities of of the Wagner Group. So it's it's, it's a definite change. Uh, this you know this puts him in a position, I I guess, where he would really just be restricted to living in Russia and, and not traveling internationally because most other countries would would be on the lookout for him. I would guess. I mean, absolutely now, but now, you know, he has, um, you know, he's sort of crossed the Rubicon. He can't, he can't um, sort of uh, go back. I mean, in terms of, you know, it's indicative of the fact, the fact that he was suing a journalist um, in London, even, you know, as late as uh, early 2022, you know, just in the months before the invasion showed that at that point, he still wanted to preserve the semblance of him being a legitimate businessman and just a sort of um, a normal guy, so to speak. And um, that obviously has been completely discarded. You know, he has been doing, um, as you said, you know, he's, he's, he's opened a corporate headquarters for an organization that he said didn't even exist, um, you know, a year ago. Uh, but he's also becoming increasingly grotesque in, um, and, you know, sort of in the violence he's celebrating um, and his sort of social media signaling. So, you know, after... A video emerged which uh, purported to show a defector from his, you know, mercenary outfit being murdered uh, with a sledgehammer by other mercenaries. He celebrated it online, and then he also someone put up a video which, you know, 
again, not clear if it really happened, but, you know, of him sending a sledgehammer, a bloodied sledgehammer in a violin case embossed with a Wagner logo to the European Parliament. You know, so he is almost uh, like reveling in this sort of, um, you know, this almost kind of pantomime evil uh, in a way which uh, means there's certainly no way back for him into uh, respectable society. Um, But it is kind of remarkable that that only happened after the invasion. You know, so basically before the invasion, um, yes, he was sanctioned, you know, and increasingly the sort of the, you know, the, the screws were tightened on him. Uh, and, you know, the U.S., you know, was sort of um, sanctioning his uh, private jets, which were always held through shell companies and basically making life quite annoying for him. Um, but he was largely able to kind of live relatively unmolested in terms of his um, his travel and um, his family as well. And so it basically shows that up until then, the, the price for running a sort of uh, murderous uh, international criminal organization wasn't actually that high. And has it gotten higher in the last few months? Is he, or is he still traveling freely and evading uh, attempts to pin him down? I mean, no, he he can't. Um, you know, he can't travel to um, outside of. You know, he can't travel to um, the European Union or anything like that at the moment. But um, but there is definitely another element, which is that as he's now become an increasingly prominent public figure in Russia, it becomes much more of a high wire act for him, where. You know he's been he's been quite vocal and sort of stirring up a lot of trouble by calling out, for example, the Russian Minister of Defense and criticizing generals and criticizing the way the war's going and generally uh, making himself probably quite unpopular with some pretty powerful people who are very unlikely to sympathize with a man like him because you know the sort of the powerful you know the security men in um you know the people in the intelligence services and the military in russia you know he is not one of them he is uh you know a catering entrepreneur um you know ostensibly a kind of street thug who has emerged into this strategic role in um the russian um invasion but um by calling them out they will probably not um look on him very favorably and so he's making clearly making some powerful enemies and i think the news that the um, Wagner group is no longer recruiting prisoners is very interesting because there's a number of ways that that can be interpreted. Uh, obviously the, the, the um, that was actually when he first sort of broke cover was when uh, a video surfaced um, late last year of him in a prison pitching the Wagner group to a bunch of prisoners and basically telling them the conditions of, um, you know, what, the, what the deal would be. Um, and obviously the deal is that um, no matter how serious a crime you've committed if you go and serve with them and i think it's for if you survive i think for six months then you get pardoned um but the fatality rate is huge you know this is a meat grinder these people are being sent to the front and basically just thrown over the top and you know being um you know shot to pieces and so so many people are dying out of those battalions that um it is understandable why prisoners might say well you know i've got uh, another 15 years to serve in my sentence I'd probably rather just stay here. <laughs> I think that's where I would be at. Do you have a sense of who would win in a battle between um, Prigozhin and and the people who served directly under uh, Vladimir Putin? Because obviously he's a friend of Putin, so he's an ally of Putin. He, he's valuable to him. Which which group of thugs comes out on top in a dispute like this? 
I think it would be fair to say that um, ultimately, uh, you know, Prigozhin is an outsider um, and he's not going, he's not part of the, if you look at um, Vladimir Putin um, and the people who've been close to him, they're all people, uh, they tend to be people with very similar backgrounds to Putin, as in people who served in the KGB, um, you know, people with a sort of, um, you know, uh, intelligence officer, sort of um, hard mentality where, um, who sort of risen through the apparatus in that way, whereas Prigozhin is an outsider. And so I think he, um, it doesn't seem plausible to me that he would ever be able to really um, sort of gain power um, or more influence in Russia beyond what he really has. And maybe, you know, there's a point where there's, you know, potentially we've seen his peak. I mean, you know, it's uh, the fact that, um, you know, if these reports are, you know, the way they're being interpreted is correct of the prisoners um, uh, not wanting to serve for him anymore. How much more usefulness does he have? You know, does he have a monopoly on private military companies? There are a number of uh, Russian private military companies. His is the most infamous, um, but he could probably quite easily be replaced. And he's annoyed quite a lot of people. So um, I think uh it's uh, going to be very interesting to see what happens to him in the next six months to a year. I'm sure either way we will be hearing about it because, as you say, he um, he likes to make a splash. He likes to be public these days with journalists. If you have not read the story yet, it is Wagner Inc., a Russian warlord and his lawyers in the Financial Times from Miles Johnson. Miles, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you. The Full Comment is a post-media podcast. My name's Brian Lilly, your host. This episode was produced by Andre Pru with theme music by Bryce Hall. Kevin Libin is the executive producer. Remember, you can subscribe to Full Comment on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, Amazon Music, what have you. Make sure you give us a rating, leave a review, and tell your friends all about us. Thanks for listening.